Hey everybody, welcome to this week's q and A's. I'm recording these late Thursday afternoon, so hopefully there was enough time for people to get their questions in. So let's jump in and see what we got. First up, over on Patreon, Tony Escobar wanted to follow up about the CRT monitor that they found. Turns out it's a Zenith HealthView model H20H52DT. I'll leave the model number and a link to the manual in the description if anybody's interested. And they wanted to know how to hook it up and kind of what to do with it. And I did a little research, I read through the manual, and it seems that this is one of those CRTs that was mounted on the ceiling in hospital rooms or any kind of medical facilities where patients would be able to watch TV. This is actually strangely something I have a lot of experience with because the main use for the computers we used to design was exactly that. Flat panels on the end of an arm that would swing in front of the patient with a touchscreen on it so you could have TV and entertainment and all that right there. Before you make fun of me, this was pretty iPad. So that was innovative back then. Now, nowadays, I'm sure the first thing you would hear is that's dumb. Why not use an iPad? Right. That's why we don't do that anymore. <laughs> but but um, that was in the, the mid to late 2000s. So there were still a lot of these style CRTs in the hospitals when I was going through and kind of checking this stuff out. And what you'll really find is that these were designed for to comply with everything medically related. So even though they're technically medical grade monitors, they're no more TVL than any standard TV. And in fact, they might not even be as good quality as something you would have picked up at Circuit City or Nobody Beats the Wiz. Was that still around in the 2000s? Whatever, if you're old, you know what I meant. Um, it actually might be worse quality than that. Those were designed first and foremost to be controlled uh, by something like whatever you have next to you in your bed when you're in the hospital. So the channel changer and even the speaker is in the thing next to you so you don't crank up the volume on your TV so that when you walk down the hallway in the hospital, there aren't just a bunch of TVs blaring. You just hold it next to you so it's only as loud as you need to, to go from there to your face. So that was a big feature of it and it definitely has one of those ports on the back. It appeared to have standard mono audio input and yellow composite video input as well. So you could certainly use it as a monitor. And I will definitely add that while this might not be the medical grade monitor you hoped it would, if this was new old stock just laying around, you have a brand new CRT. So I always say, and I know I, I kind of didn't do the greatest job articulating this back in when I first started the website, but composite video on a CRT is still amazing. I love it. Composite through scalers on flat panels, that's what I, I usually have some disdain for, but this scenario is fine. As long as it's in good condition, you could probably still have a great experience. Um, also note that if you're going from mono or going from a stereo console to a mono input, you can use a Y cable. I don't want to repeat myself because we've gone over this quite a bit. Reference the page or the video that describes why, but never ever Y cables with video, with audio at worst, you'll get some interference, but you certainly won't have voltage or safety issues. So you could still just go ahead and use it. Um, I wouldn't try messing with uh, well, let me rephrase that. If you wanted to mess with the remote control and remote speaker out for the part that goes next to the patient, you could probably try to look up the service manual, get a pin out, mod it, do some pretty neat speaker stuff with it. But that's a lot of work for that. And you might want to just appreciate it as is. And depending on the condition, I don't know, you might want to really just kind of concentrate on video first and just get yourself a pair of shielded speakers. Old PC speakers are great for this to start out with. So, I mean, that's pretty much it. Um, you know, you could try to track down a remote for it, but you might be stuck getting one of those old hospital remotes. And if you get that, just please do yourself a favor and wash the ever-living heck out of it. Trust me when I tell you, you do not want to know what those things have been through. <laughs> like I always teach or try to teach safety for electronics. I would rather over clean one of those, the remotes, not the CRT and kill it than not do that good of a job, which is the opposite of like a video game controller. If you have a gross, dirty NES controller, I'll pull the plastic all apart and clean the heck out of the plastics and then do an alcohol bath and a scrub for the, the PCB. But I'll overall try to be gentle with it for something that came out of a hospital. No way I'm being gentle with it. I am scrubbing 
scrubbing the shit out of it. So just, you know, just my opinion there, but that's another safety-based one. So overall, I think you have a pretty cool find. I think it's something that you probably are going to enjoy messing with, especially if you got it for free, but just have realistic expectations. This isn't some medical-grade PVM that they used to use to look at x-rays and MRIs. These This was just something that was most likely hanging from the ceiling so that patients could just kind of stare off and watch TV as they were recovering. SD Heavens has a question, and I need to start out with an apology. I am far behind. I'm catching up, but let me actually ask the, <laughs> read the question. SD Heavens wants to know if I have the 3D printed files for the CandyCap project that I've been featured hosting anywhere on the website, particularly the one that looks similar to an original coin slot. They looked but couldn't find it. This is actually the exact solution for a very specific problem they've been having with their setup, and they would love to get it installed in their cab after seeing your past or my past couple videos about it. So I will leave a link to uh, Midgeek Crisis and where they posted the files. I'll double check with Joe just to make sure. And um, I'll leave that here for anybody listening to the Q&As. The reason I have not linked to it anywhere else is because I had all intentions of doing a full written post about it. And now maybe a, uh, a little side TikTok video. I'll talk about that at the end of the Q&As. But and I just haven't had time to do it. So I'm, I'm really trying to get that done by the end of the weekend. If time doesn't allow, I'll just figure something out. But I liked it so much that I wanted to give it more exposure than just tweeting a link or something. I wanted to make sure that was archived on RetroRGB. Uh, if if MidGeek Crisis wants me to secondary host the files just as a backup, I'll gladly do that. If not, I'll point to wherever they're hosting. It's totally cool. But I, I think it's really awesome. And I love... I love how it's it just does look like a coin slot. And a few people since that has been released have sent me in a nice way, sent me pictures of similar projects that I didn't know existed. And I still think this one's my favorite for our use. When I say our use, I mean us nerds that are probably going to need three buttons, not one, that would like something that we could either 3D print ourselves. I do have a question for all of you, though. How do you think I should get the screw into the metal one? I didn't think about that because the 3D print design was supposed to have those inserts, those screw thread inserts that you basically put at the end of your soldering iron. You push them into the 3D print because it heats up and kind of melts itself in and that's it. I, I still would recommend using plastic screws for that just so that, you know, you don't put, you're not using a big strong metal screw that might rip that right out. You want to just make it, you know, only as tight as you need to. But obviously I can't do that with the metal one. So I was trying, I was thinking of like, using a hand drill just to slightly open up the holes in the metal one that I had printed and then epoxy one of those things into it. I don't know. I've never done that before. To be perfectly honest, I would not have spent all the money on the metal one, except I just really wanted wanted it to look cool for the ad. But I also just wanted to, you know, I wanted to utilize that coupon that JLCPCB got me. And I was like, well, if they sent me a coupon. Why don't I just go all out and get the, the best or most expensive one they have? And I ended up liking it. So um, I would like to have that one on my candy cap. Sorry, I got a nap flying around in here. I just don't know how I would insert the, the thread, threaded screw thing into it. So does anybody have any ideas? If not, I'm just going to drill, drop the normal, the one that you would normally melt in into it and epoxy it, and wait a day, and then try using that. But I'm all ears. So SD Heavens, uh, my apologies. I should have had that up for everybody. And my apologies to Midgeek Crisis as well. But I, I just wanted to make sure that I got the post up, pictures, how I did the metal one, and just kind of show a very brief overview of how to do it yourself. But I definitely Definitely like the project a lot. So thanks uh, to Midgeek Crisis. And of course, thanks to Tian Fong for, for doing the whole thing uh, and just letting all of us have it for free. Raymond has a bunch of questions related to Mr. So I'm just going to kind of run through them quick, just in the interest of everybody's time. First, is there a proper power off for sequence for the Mr. or just cut the power? I'm 99.9% .9 sure there isn't any power off sequence necessary. And in fact, I don't even go back to the main menu when I'm done. I just hit the power button right on my retro castle case or in the arcade boards or the arcade machines. I just power it off from the main power strip. So everything goes off at once. I'm pretty sure that's not something you would have to worry about, but somebody chime in if you're, uh, anybody thinks I'm wrong about that. 
Next, how can you set up multiple configs for uh, arcade cabinets and for standalone with, a, with HDMI stuff? That's just the Mr. INI alternative files. Um, that's just something that uh, I think I mostly talked about it in the context of direct video, but you could do it any way you'd like. Just remember that uh, it's going to default to the main one uh, with, with no user interaction. So you can power it up with your controllers up, down, left, or right button held down to power it in one of those alternative modes. Or you could boot it to the main mode and then go manually change. And I can't remember if it boots to the last loaded mode or if it always boost, boots to the main mode. So you're going to want to check that out. But basically, I would just look a little bit more into the documentation on that. But you could have any combination of anything you would like, up to four total, the main and three alternates, which works out because, you know, four directions on a D-pad. Um, and I have uh, the Retro Castle case I have for my mister is the one that I use for testing. And I have crazy stuff programmed into that. My main is just basic generic. And then I have direct video. I have super resolution. I get a whole bunch of stuff programmed into that for this exact reason. So totally cool. Um, you, you just want to research which settings for what and how to boot into which one. I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but that's documentation you'll want to read through anyway. Next, they are a Patreon supporter of Hotego, and they would like to know which other Patreons offer nice features to consider supporting. I have a hard time answering this, because if I were rich, I would I would support the max tier level of everybody who contributes to Mr. Uh, so that's got to be something that you have to decide for yourself. I am not rich, so I contribute the minimum amount to everybody. And I'm sorry to all the amazing developers. I really wish I could jack up my payments. But, you know, the one thing that you all have to remember about supporting people on monthly support services like Patreon, Floatplane, whatever, is anything is better than nothing. So, and telling your friends. Because it's one of those things where if 10 people each donated 50 bucks a month, that's amazing. But if a thousand people each donated a dollar a month, that's better for everybody. So just please, I, I think my, my suggestion to you, Raymond, would be go through and, and select which creators make the stuff that's the most important to you and start from there. But spread the word to anybody you know about this stuff and just politely remind people that all of this free stuff that we all benefit from can't be done without support. So it's just, you know, something for all of us to, to keep in the back of our minds. And these monthly support services, people still talk so much shit about them, but really it allows for so many things to happen that would never, ever be viable without stuff like this. Hotego is an excellent example. I'm sorry to make this about me, but I'm an excellent example as well. I don't take sponsored reviews for this exact reason. You don't have to worry. Now, yes, I'm biased because I... I know a lot of developers and I know the work that went into a lot of this stuff. So I, I know some products are definitely going to be top tier, but that's personal bias based on my own testing. And I always show my proof in all of these reviews anyway. That's not bias because I have to give a good review. Uh, otherwise, the sponsor won't pay me. That is the type of bias that you need to worry about. And that's something that at least for, you know, at least for the time being, I haven't had to do that which keeps everybody kind of honest. So just anybody who's listening to this, please consider that. Uh, next up, which Bluetooth dongle keyboard and touchpad combo do I advise for the Mr.? Um, I link to the ones that I use on the Mr. page. I'll put a, a link here, of course, for anybody that's interested. But I like the combo Bluetooth Wi-Fi receiver, and I like the separate USB keyboard. Uh, it's wireless. It's a little mini one because I could also, I don't have to worry about uh, any kind of sync as long as the thing is plugged in it's done you don't have to worry about bluetooth desyncing and you could just use it on anything if you needed to use it on your pc if you get a second mister so that's the one that i suggest um also how on their mister can they show roms from the local sd card and network shared folder when using a core i think you could back all the way out It'll, it takes a minute, but you just go through and you back all the way out through the folders and then you could access the SD card that way. The other thing you might be able to do, which I've never tested this before, but you might be able to create sim links on your network share that point back to the local. You're going to have to try that yourself, though. I've never done it. I don't have time to test. So, but, you know, let us know if anybody's done that before. That might be kind of neat. But generally speaking, I... 
I keep all of my ROMs on RetroNAS and I run update all and everything seems to work. So not really sure. Um, I don't think you would need to have both unless there was some kind of speed issue for something, but you know, keep me updated. Let me know if there's a reason that you would need local files on that. And lastly, not Mr. Related, they have a Panasonic 3DO FZ1, but can't get any CDRs working. So good that you mentioned the model name because I had a Gold Star 3DO that would not play CDRs at all either, and apparently that was a known thing for those. The FZ1 should. Uh, you're going to need to do, you, you need a few things for this. You need to make sure that your image is correct. You need to make sure that you're using high quality CDRs. And you need specific burners that can burn it at slower speed at certain higher qualities. They used to, people used to hunt down these Plextor burners. I've heard that there, some modern ones are actually great for CDs as well. So if I were you, I would look into any kind of 3DO focused um, Discord servers. I know there's one out there because I'm joined at least one of them. And I would ask the question there because other people have definitely run into this and they might be able to provide links, you know, Amazon links to the CDRs and you know, eBay links to older burners and maybe even software, specific software that you would need. I use ImageBurn, which I think you mentioned as well. Um, so I would just kind of check through all of those and see. And of course, if that drives you too crazy, you could always get Fixels ODE. I know it's not cheap, but you know, these are the one of the many reasons why you would want one of those. You just don't have to worry anymore. So hopefully I was able to go through all those, but uh, please re-ask if you need me to clarify anything. Mikel or Michael, I'm sorry, I can't remember what's the correct pronunciation for your name. I, I never intend to pronounce them wrong, but anyway, they have a question about Dreamcast output. It looks like they're using a RetroTINK 5X, and they're looking to get all of the resolutions out of the Dreamcast. Great news there. Just go to either Retro Access or Retro Gaming Cables and get a SCART cable that has a switchable output on it for the Dreamcast. When you're playing games that are not 480p compatible or ones that require the switch trick, then what you would do is set it to 15 kilohertz mode. And when you do have 480p games, just flip it to 31 or do it when, when it's booting, when you see the logo pop up in order to force that mode. I had that in my Dreamcast video, which um, I guess I'll link here if you're interested. You know, I'll link the video and the cables just to make sure I'm clear about which ones to get. But it is kind of confusing because all of us have been painstakingly waiting for the HD Retrovision cables, which I, I just, maybe they're never coming again. They really, I really did have them in my hand using them. So I, I just, that wasn't BS. I didn't lie for anybody. I think the part shortage just murdered so many different projects like that. I think that really was like a, a breath away from releasing and then everything kind of collapsed on itself. But to make things even more confusing, you can get RGB SCART cables that are only 15 kilohertz, which is also what the original Dreamcast output or Dreamcast SCART cable was. So it is a confusing thing to deal with. But as long as you have one that has the 15, 31 kilohertz switch on it, and as long as you just, my suggestion would be leave it in 31 kilohertz mode. And then if you have any compatibilities, then flip it off. Or if you know, for example, that Street Fighter 3 Alpha or something would require that to get into RGB mode or, or whatever else, whatever issues you want, leave it in 31 kilohertz, flip it to 15 only when needed. So I'll leave links to all of that stuff, but good question. DW623 has a question about the batteries inside your game cartridges that retain your game saves. They want to know if brand matters or if generic is fine. And can you just use whatever coin cell batteries you find at the supermarket cheap and add your own tabs to the side or if you need to buy them with those already added to it? I will gladly answer this question, but I'm getting a crazy sense of deja vu. I feel like I answered this exact same question a month or two ago. So uh, DW, if you're just if you didn't hear the other answer a few weeks ago, totally cool. But um, I, that also might mean that I answered your question, but the answer got deleted in post by accident. So my, my sincere apologies if that was it. But uh, my answer to you, my honest answer is that I am super lazy 
and I want Luke from Console 5 to do all the work for me. So I just go to console5.com. I'll leave a link to the store in the description. I go to the exact battery that I need and I order it from Luke and it already has the tab on it. It's already a brand that if there were issues, Luke would be getting a ton of returns or complaints for it. So uh, I, I just kind of confidently know that that's a good solution for me. If that didn't exist, um, I personally, even though this might be wrong, this might not be accurate or scientifically correct, but it is my opinion that if I'm going to take the time to replace a cartridge battery, I don't want to cheap out on it. I'm not going to buy a generic brand, which could be made in the exact same factory at the same time as a name brand, but it also couldn't. Um, and I also don't want to buy one of those uh, mini spot welder things like Voltar did the video on to manually add those because what if I get it slightly askew and it's, you know, it's crooked and, you know, I just, I don't want to think about all of that stuff. If I'm taking the time to, to work on a cartridge that's important to me, I just want to do it right. So I would try to find a name brand that, you know, and, and more importantly too, ask other people in retro what they've been using in their experience and, and use that instead. So basically, go to console five unless uh, shipping is just too crazy wherever you might live. Now on the flip side though, what if you own a game store and you just want to make it your policy that you charge a premium, but you change every battery that comes in on every cartridge. They're all opened. They're cleaned with the proper methods, not Brasso and sandpaper. And you know, they're, and you change the batteries and now, uh, you know, everything that's not a, just a bargain bin game has a premium price tag you still want to save money because you want to save your customers money. You're not going to buy single packs of expensive coin cell batteries that already have them on. You might just want to buy them in bulk. And in that case, I would still kind of look for name brands, but I would look for bulk packaging on them. And you could absolutely do the, the spot well, just like Voltar showed, which I'll leave links to, of course, but you could do that. But that's that's a totally different scenario. Then you're buying... 500 or a thousand batteries and you're buying the tools to do this and you're cranking them out all the time and you might save yourself some money at the end of the day but you know maybe you could have just found them already already done for you so you know that was a really long drawn out way of saying just buy them from console 5 but i always want to kind of cover all grounds because even though i'm that just buying it from console 5 might solve your problem dw maybe other people are listening and going yeah it's not going to work for me i have a hundred cartridges or i want to do everything in my collection or so i just kind of want to to kind of spread out the answer for everyone but um hopefully the console 5 links all you need James Freeman is currently using two powered five in one out HDMI switches in their main gaming setup, one to each of the TV's HDMI inputs. They want to know if daisy chaining the two switches will add noticeable input lag. They've read differing opinions on the matter, but they found little actual evidence. Are they better off just switching out the cords anytime they want to use a device from the other switch instead? So, I'm really interested where I'll answer your question in a second, but I'm interested on where you heard that that would add lag. Um, I think I, I just off the top of my head, I can guess the community that told you that, but zero lag added. And you could uh, prove this with a time sleuth if you'd like. I've daisy chained a bunch of stuffs together. It's a bunch, bunch of stuffs. Wow, I'm sharp today, aren't I? Bunch of switches together uh, and and components and adapters. And in fact, lag testing retro gaming equipment or retro scalers or something is a video that I did a few years ago where I put like a switch into a DAC, into a OSSC, into an ADC or, or whatever. I mean, I basically put like six things in a row and the milliseconds did not change. So you should have zero issues with that whatsoever. It is kind of funny to read people saying stuff like that online. However, as long as the switch doesn't advertise any kind of processing. So it would have to be a switch that had a frame buffer that offered different features like zoom or something else. But I, I can't imagine, I you know, I've seen a lot of those fi or five in one out switches. I own one myself. And they're all very basic. Uh, that's not an insult. It's just, it does exactly what you would expect. So I would not worry about that whatsoever. I think you're totally fine. Um, and it would be kind of funny to hear where, where you heard the HDMI switches ad lag thing.
Yepo is looking for a recommendation for a fast 1080p projector for retro gaming. They don't want to go higher than 1080p because then they'd have to increase the resolution of all their sources, movies, etc. So I can only speak for the one that I own, and I love it. So I want to talk about that, give it a chance, because it's not quite what you're looking for, but it's also expensive. I mean, when it comes to home theater, it's cheap. When it comes to how much you would normally spend, maybe, I don't know, all that stuff's relative. It was expensive for me, but I want to talk about it for just a moment, and I do think you might end up going on eBay or something and picking up a used one instead. However, I have a BenQ TK700STI, which is 4K HDR, and at 4K60, it's just about a frame of lag, which is great for a projector, but... If you drop it down to 1080p, you could go up to 240 hertz. And if you're a PC gamer or if you use software emulation over PCs, then it drops to 4 milliseconds of latency. It's also a short throw projector, and it could go up to 100 inches at 6.5 feet. So why would I recommend this when you just said you don't want to go there? So you don't have to change the source the sources that you're using for this projector. You could just use it in 1080p mode and it should work completely fine. Um, you know, you, that might mean that the projector is doing a little bit of scaling, but overall, this is now kind of future-proofing to stay at 4K. However, if you use something like the OSSC DeX or the upcoming RetroTINK uh, 4K, well, it's probably a year away, you should be able to run things in 1080p 120. So you get the same advantages of BFI mode, black frame insertion that, that you see on fancy OLEDs, which means much less motion blur. You, you have that advantage at 1080p. And for the short term, you could certainly just use whatever you have on it now. RetroTINK 5X, 2K, whatever. The only thing that I will... 2X, not 2K. But the only thing that I'll mention is that projector screens are like not perfectly uniform. They all kind of have like a wobble to them. Uh, well, at least the ones I could afford, you know, you could certainly get professional grade, perfectly smooth ones, but it, any kind of variation or wobble to it, you're not going to be able to use scan lines. It's just going to look insane because you're going to get the, it's not, you know, you would almost think, oh, but the geometry of CRTs isn't perfect. So wouldn't it match that? No, it looks terrible. So uh, that's the only other thing I would mention for any projector, unless you have a, a perfect screen on it. Scanline emulation isn't going to be the thing, but if you're looking for something new that you could do a lot of stuff on, supports 3D, so you could even use 3D PlayStation and Xbox 360 games. Maybe someday if we get a Virtual Boy Core on the Mister, there could be 3D there too. You could enjoy all of that stuff, but I really think having the ability to go to 120 or 240 in, the, in this case of the 1080p 240 is really good for people that have more than just retro gaming on there you have you know pc gaming software emulation or of course any of the potential scalar stuff and i did try the dex's output in 720p 120 on this projector and it was a very noticeable difference um, versus 720p60 or even 1080p60 because you get that lack of motion blur. Now, BFI itself adds a little bit of latency as well, but that's all a trade-off. And it's, you know, basically, if you're going to use a projector, you're going to be talking about a little bit of lag anyway over a CRT. So that's just all of those things you're going to want to keep into, into your mind while you're doing this. But it's expensive. So... If you would prefer, maybe you could just go to any of those projector websites, see who's done latency tests on theirs, and try to find a used cheap one on eBay that goes up to 1080p60 that could hold you off until budget allows for this or whatever comes out after it. But I wanted to kind of do a very quick projector overview for you on this, just so you would know what to expect. Um, but, you know, you're always going to have a little bit more lag and a lot more money spent when using a projector versus a cheap flat panel. Adam Adamant has a question regarding every modder's favorite controversial subject, glue. They understand how glue or silicon could be unsightly, but they're also a former employee of one of the largest shipping companies, and they've seen firsthand how packages are treated. Disclaimer, they're not saying that glue should pick up the slack of bad solder joints. Would a retro RGB writer be willing to do a write-up of do this, don't this for glue practices when modding? 
Voltar and I did that. We did a video making fun of my early mod work, some of which I was just ignorant about, and others I, I did the wrong thing when I said, hey, here's just a, a visual example. I cleaned this up after I was done, but here you go. Forgetting, and actually, to be honest, not even considering that people would be reading Retro RGB when it first was released, especially not considering people from around the world would who don't speak English as their first or second language, so they're going by the pictures. So I accidentally, for a short period of time, showed some pretty bad practices. Um, and we made fun of that, and we explained why they were bad. As you know, We tried to be funny about it, but it was also a lot of fact in there as well. But I can give you a couple of overviews. So first and foremost, don't ever get glue on the solder joint, ever because the heat from the glue might slightly dislodge it. Um, it could create heat buildup. There's, there's lots of bad reasons for that. And the reason that that is such a big talked about thing is about 10 years ago, maybe a little less than that, there was a modder out there that just thought it was easier to touch the wire to a, a solder point with a whole you know glob of glue over it, wait for it to dry, and leave that instead of actually soldering the wire to the pin, and they were selling consoles and mods like that. So that is one of the main reasons why glue got such hate over the years. And, you know, sometimes, you know, it's, it's like a concert, right? When, uh, when people start to push one way, the only real solution is to either push back or fall over. So, you know, there was a lot of pushback from the modding community, but I think it kind of fell into the middle mostly. You know, there's always going to be people that just want to, want to make noise because they can but i think most people are, are pretty calm about it nowadays that we've showed examples but basically don't use it in, ever use it in place of a good connection and don't ever let it touch any of the solder joints or anything where it could create some heat or dislodge anything like that um, one of the things that i i didn't really get through my skull when i first started modding because i didn't have the right wire i didn't have the right soldering iron i think my first couple of weeks doing retro rgb stuff i was still using a wood wood burning iron and not a soldering iron because i had it in my drawer since i was like 15 somebody gave it to me once i didn't realize which was which i didn't do this stuff all the time and then when i did it at my jobs i would use the professional grade equipment so i you know i didn't really get in the context of older equipment, older, you know, adding fresh solder, all of that stuff. But if you do a good job and you solder a wire to a, a, any kind of point, you should be able to give it a pretty solid tug without it popping off. And if it does pop off, you didn't solder it right. But a lot of beginners use glue to hold that wire in place so it won't pop off. But that's just wrong because if you should really learn how to do the soldering correctly so you don't have to worry about it. Now, that said, there are certainly times where exactly what you describe happens. Uh, the one that's popping up in my mind right away is lifting the RGB pins on the Genesis 1 VDP for triple bypass installations. It's the same theory of make sure the wires are solid, but those pins on the VDP are very brittle. So even if you pack the heck out of that Genesis, if it, a box goes down a flight of stairs, there's a good chance that just the very light weight of those wires flopping around could break off the VDP pins. So you'll see a lot of modders, the solder joints are correct, but on the motherboard, they'll put a dab of glue on the wires to make sure that not the joints, but the wires are secured to the motherboard. Now, Yes, hot glue is not a permanent solution. Hot glue will eventually pop off. That's why I love it. I use hot glue all the time in scenarios in which I want to eventually remove it because it is easy to come off or and it's non-conductive. So in this case, you don't want to put epoxy like some there was a modern notorious for using epoxy in these situations. Just destroyed motherboards and cases doing it this way. So you, you don't want it permanent for that reason. But if you're a modder who's done a beautiful job with great joints between your wires and your connection pins, but it has to ship across the world, yeah, sometimes tying down some slack with hot glue or for a lot of the PlayStation 2 ones, people use, I think, nail polish, which gets very, very sticky. Um, there was a couple of different tricks, but all of them were, were solid reasons for doing so. And it was exactly the, the perfect scenario for doing exactly that. So um, I think something like this would be best described by showing the Voltar video 
or doing a detailed video about it. I don't think a written post would really be able to demonstrate it as much. I think even talking about it here, probably talking too long about it, would be better than just a written post to show things like pulling on the wire to make sure your connection is tight and why why the, the slack of the wires might sometimes need to be tacked down. But hopefully this was like a quick five minute-ish overview just to put things into perspective for people. But definitely, please let me know your thoughts on it. And you know, just if you don't really know what to look for and you're buying a console that has glue in it, the easiest thing is, is the glue on the wires securing it to the motherboard or is it on solder joints? And is there an excessive amount or is there just the right amount? And I think those should be very good visual examples of what to look for. There's exceptions for everything, of course, but I think that's a good starting point. Jason Guffey has a couple of questions. First, what experience or advice do I have, if any, as far as replacing an Xbox 360 disk drive? They know they're ID coded to the system, so a simple swap won't work, but apparently you could flash the firmware of your ID drive onto a new one. Have you ever done this before? No, and the Xbox 360 came out in a very weird part of my, my work life where I was traveling all over the planet for that job. And while I did have one right away because it also worked well with Windows Media Center, I think that's what they called it, XP Media Center Edition. And we were using that in some of our computer distributions. So I did have one and I did use it for gaming and for an HD DVD drive, but I didn't really get into the modding scene because I just didn't have any time. And then fast forward all these years later, I just have Jose do all of my modding for me for stuff like that. So you might want to look into different forums or different places online. Of course, check the wiki. I'm sure Durf has a bunch of cool stuff up on there, but I'm going to be useless to you for that. Sorry. Next, they happened upon a Tandy TRS-80 and they don't know the first thing about it other than what they've uh, seen in videos. I have one right up there, right there up on top that's waiting for it. I had one growing up as a kid, so I got one at a very good deal. Actually, I actually think I found it at Video Games New York, and it's been sitting there this whole time, and I eventually want to mod it, but let me continue with your question. Any suggestions on games or software to look for or what they should do with it first? So what you should do with it first is just power it up to make sure you get a signal out of the RF output. As for games or software, I got nothing. I bought that for a blast of nostalgia, which I almost never do. I buy my games and consoles mostly to work on for retro RGB, but when I when I do it for me personally, I buy them for the games. But this one I bought just because I thought it would be neat to kind of look up the software I saw as a kid and kind of look at it 35 years later or something with a fresh set of eyes to, to see how I would think of something like that today but I don't know if there's anything on there really worth going after. Um, but you know, all of these platforms have cool software. So I'm going to leave that up to the community. And when I eventually get mine up and running, then, uh, or, or redone or something, I'll kind of look into that as well. Should they look into RGB modding it too? And if so, could they keep native output options? Pretty sure it's only got RF and CVBS. I think it actually only has RF at all. I think that's the only output for it. I personally was going to do the S video mod because it was very easy to do and I was going to remove the RF jack or the yeah the you know the RF box that's in it and then I was going to have something there where an S video receptacle cable and like an RCA cable kind of hung out the back of course in the inside there would be strain relief and all of that and that way I could do a complete no cut mod and just get S video and mono audio out of it I do believe there are RGB mod kits for it, but I, that's going to have to be something that you decide how much effort you want to put in. You could do an S-Video mod fairly cheap and easily, and you might even be able to make your own with through-hole components if you'd like on a breadboard. But that's something I, I've yet to look into, and I, my goal in 2023 is to catch up on a lot of projects like that and probably do them all live stream-esque and then hopefully get around to just like cutting up the live streams into one quick 10-minute overview video. But that's basically all I've got at this point. And uh, hopefully by the time I get to those, I will tap into some of the very cool retro computer communities out there that might be able to help with all of that. Hector Santana wants to know why we don't see more converters that downgrade an image. Is it just a lack of demand or something else? Something else. So 
I guess the best way to explain this is to start with a console. You have something like a Genesis or a Super Nintendo where the video is generated by the main video chip and then it's sent to a video encoder chip. The Genesis has the Sony CXA, Nintendo uses a very similar version of that and that takes the RGB signal and it amplifies it to proper RGB levels. Same with the sync signal. And then it also combines those to make S-Video and composite. And then of course, then that's routed to an RF box to make RF. So if it's that easy, why can't you just use those chips like the Sony CXA and an external encoder? The reason is because those are not the only signals going to the Sony CXA. In the case of the Genesis, you have the subcarrier, the pixel clock, and I think a few other things. And yes, I am oversimplifying this. Developers, stop rolling your eyes. I'm just trying to do my best giving a general answer to this. So when you don't have those extra signals, those don't the chip doesn't really know how to process the colors and how to process the information on screen. And while you could get it kind of close for generic stuff like VCRs, video game consoles are all unique. So you would have to dial each one in either manually, which is a kind of a pain or using the signals from the console. So that's why you could get the Ashenworks or the Linux bot, or um, I think Retrocastle Ivory is coming out with a few. You could do RGB to S video with mostly no issues. It's not going to be as good as the original console for the reasons I just explained, but that's when you start getting crazy color issues going to composite. And hopefully Ivory will finish the design with the variable capacitor on there so you could manually dial it in, but it's still not going to be the same. And you're still going to get a little bit of shimmering and weird color issues for that reason. Now, why we haven't seen component video to S video converters? My guess, and this is just a guess, but my guess is there are already chips out there like the Sony CXA to go from RGB down, but I don't know if there are any chips at all available that could go from component video down. Um, with going from S-Video to composite, you should be able to do that, but it's going to have the same issues that I just explained about the composite video not really looking as the way it should. Now, composite to RF is easy because that's basically just taking a composite video signal and mixing it in with an audio signal and then broadcasting it. So you could absolutely do that using an old VCR for pretty much free nowadays. You wouldn't see an external version of that or, or it wouldn't be, I, I would be surprised to see one because getting those RF encoders back in the day when they were making millions of them for VCRs and cable boxes and TVs, that's super easy where are you going to get them today? So you'd have to pay full price. You'd have to ramp up uh, production. You'd have to make your own. So that's why I don't think you would see very many RF to composite or composite to RF homebrew projects out there, but those definitely do exist. Um, going to RF should be fairly easy with all the rest of the signals as well, but um, that is definitely one of those things where I, I do think that we would benefit from a device like that. And the reason that we haven't had something like that in retro is because unlike video signals, lag is imperative to us. Because what what are the two reasons that you would mainly want to convert higher end signals to lower end like that? The number one, I think, in our context is you have you already have your setup that's going directly into your, let's say, RetroTink 5X, going to your beautiful flat panel TV, but sometimes you just want an original experience on a CRT, and the CRT that you find only has composite video. So that would be a reason, and that kind of defeats the purpose because it would be cheaper and easier just to swap your console's cable, RGB cable out with a composite cable and plug it directly into your CRT whenever you're using it. And the other would be light guns. And this is the one case where just a millisecond of lag would be a big difference because we could potentially do something like convert any of those signals, component video or RGB, to HDMI just by digitizing it, kind of like the pass-through mode of the RetroTINK 2Xs, and then build a converter on the output side that could go from HDMI down to those other signals. And that should potentially work because you've now digitized it, and when you're going from digital to analog, you can include all of that extra information in your circuit. 
but that might add just enough latency so that light guns wouldn't work. And that's certainly something you could test with like plugging composite into a RetroTank 2X, setting it to pass through mode, and then taking one of those no latency HDMI to component video converters into your TV. Light guns won't work through that. So that's probably why most people haven't done it. And I'm pretty sure that's why Mike Chi hasn't done it because you would essentially end up with a device that would be more expensive than the RetroTank 2X because you have to add all of that extra external circuitry to it. But then you would end up not being able to use light guns anyway, defeating probably one of the main purposes for that. So while I I tried to make the, your answer thorough so everybody listening could understand, but also more general so that you don't have to be a super nerd to understand it. So if anybody has any questions, let me know. I could certainly elaborate, but I just kind of wanted to give the basic overview for all of that. And I would love to see a lot more HDMI related stuff that goes like that because I do think that there's just a couple of scenarios in which that might be pretty cool and I think the retro tank scenario going to a CRT might work even if you don't care about light gun games so maybe an HDMI converter that goes from HDMI to component RGB S-video and composite video is something that the community would need, knowing that light guns probably aren't going to work. Maybe that's still something that's kind of cool. I don't know. So we could certainly look into that, but you know, let us know in the comments what you think. Before I go, I just want to let you all know that I'm going to be trying something new in hopes to promote the channel better. So just a very quick overview. The higher production videos I used to do all the time on YouTube were basically a full week's worth worth of work by themselves on top of all the other stuff that I do, which I just, I can't sustain that. I'll eventually just work myself to death. And while I enjoyed them and while they were fun, they didn't make any money at all, but they were the greatest marketing tool for the channel and the website and everything else. So people would see one of those fancy videos and see the higher production value and, and, you know, be able to jump in and understand something about a product and then subscribe to the channel. And then kind of that's their gateway drug to everything that we do at retro RGB, but I can't sustain that anymore. So I am trying to figure out ways to, and I'll still of course do higher production videos, but there was a point there where I was doing like one a week and it was just killing me. So I'm trying to think of different ways to promote the channel so that it doesn't stay stagnant because anybody that's ever worked in these types of industries knows if you have the same amount of followers for a couple of years, your income plummets. And then even though you'd think it'd stay the same, but it, it doesn't, it's kind of one of those shitty ways the world works type of things. So I'm trying to figure out other ways that I could introduce more people to what we do without spending an extra 30 hours a week on it. <laughs> and somebody had given me a suggestion the other day that I thought was absolutely worth my time. Anytime I put out a higher production video or anytime I do a live stream review of something that ends in a post, why not do a 30 second to maybe up to a minute little promo and then take that, have a link to the post. Um, you know, I'm going to be doing one for the retro gaming cable scart switch so i would have a link to the post and also where i did the mini review in the weekly roundup and just kind of blast that out to all social media with the correct hashtags and the hope would be that i spend an hour ish maybe two hours tops doing some more promotion for the work that i do to try to get it in front of more people and i feel like that is a very worthy experiment if i'll get to the if in a second but i feel like that's a very worthy experiment because as long as i don't piss enough people off, then I think it's a good way thing to try. I think it's a good experiment if I don't piss a lot of people off. And that's what I wanted to talk to you all about. Because the people that listen to these are generally uh, subscribers, supporters, and people whose opinions I very much value. So what's your thoughts on that? Do you really care if you see a YouTube shorts pop up that's, you know, less than a minute long, and it's about something that you probably already know about? You know, if you just look at that, and you're like, eh, I already heard Bob talk about this. Why would I care? That's fine. <laughs> it's totally fine. But are you going to see that and go, I'm so sick of this stuff cluttering up my YouTube feed. I just unsubscribe or mute or turn off the bell or something. Because every suggestion that I've had to build the website ends in alienating the people who are the core followers and supporters of this. So that's why I haven't taken a lot of the suggestions people have given. Because while it would be good for the algorithm, that only matters today, right now, good for the algorithm today and pissing off the people who are keeping this going 
that's not something I'm interested in doing. I, I, I appreciate all of your support so much. I want to get more stuff out to you. And I want to make sure that you all feel like this is a channel that's still worth subscribing to. But I got to do something else as well. I can't, you know, you got to concentrate a little bit on the now, but also have some foresight into all of this. So I feel like doing short, less than one minute videos and just blasting them out across all the social media and, and a YouTube short might be a pretty cool way to promote it. Uh, maybe the answer is do it across all social media platforms and not YouTube. So you don't have the shorts cluttering up your feed. Um, that, that would probably be my gut feeling on that one, but I'm going to sign up for all of them. And I know my friends have already had some uh, very colorful remarks about, oh, you're on TikTok now. What dance are you going to learn? It's just the same exact stuff that I'm going to be posting everywhere else. And I don't even know if it's going to work. I tried that retro RGB what's in the box thing on Instagram. I did all the hashtags. I did a single post today for almost a full year and it did nothing. Um, now, the people that already do follow me on Instagram, I had a lot of great conversations, a lot of trips down memory lane with people from an interacting with you awesome people point of view, it was a success. But from a, hey, maybe I could build Instagram to point more people to the rest of the stuff that I do, massive failure. Wasted my time of doing that every single day for almost a year. So I'm just trying to figure out other ways to promote this stuff. So let me know your thoughts. I know those I probably talked for too long, but I always try to be transparent, which just pisses so many people off. I, I don't really get it, but I'd rather annoy you for honesty than annoy you for some BS that I'm spewing. So do you care? Does it matter? Are you, are you just going to do what I do and say, well, I'm not interested and move on? And, and Or is it going to make it to the point where you're like, I'm sick of seeing this stuff. I'm unsubscribed. So let me know what you think. If you have any other suggestions, I'm all ears. But once again, I'm not taking any suggestions that are good for today. That would kind of alienate people that have been with us for a long time that want to, you know, I'm always looking forward as well. So anyway, thank you to everybody who participates in these. I always enjoy doing them. If for whatever reason I missed your question, please re-ask it because I never intentionally skip a question, but it's a possibility that it got deleted in post. Um, whatever it is, just make sure to ask in the latest Q&A post, wherever it is that you support, because the way these services work, I can't figure out what's a new question on an old post, and I like just scrolling through in real time. Also, anywhere that you support, ask that question in the support post. Um, it just so happens the past few weeks, most people have only been asking the questions on Patreon, and that's totally cool. I just want to make sure that you know that everybody who supports is eligible to ask questions for these. And if you don't support, if you're not in a position to, I still will try very hard to answer your question all over other platforms, but these weeklies are just a thank you for supporters. So don't want anybody else to feel like they're left out. Just hit me up on any of the social platforms and I'll try my best to answer the questions. Uh, but this is just a thank you for all of you awesome people. So thank you and I'll see you next week.